Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, we'll be talking today about the return of the Bundesliga, question mark. We'll also be talking about the U.S. men's national team and defining games in the era of that team. We'll also be talking about my American soccer spirit animal, if you will, and so much more. But joining me, as always, is my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Sunday morning? Happy Easter to you and everybody else out there. I dressed up for the occasion, as you can see, if you are uh, watching this as opposed to just listening to this. I am good. Uh, I quite like your outfit. I think it's uh, fitting for the occasion. This is a uh, special, I call it pink, but earlier uh, today on uh, online, which we know defines everything in life, uh, I was told that this was salmon. So uh, much more descriptive. Uh, so I'm going to go with salmon. I bought this years ago back in Orlando when we first started doing games, uh, the MLS version uh, over, of Orlando. Uh, we did a, an Easter broadcast from down there and I went into one of the stores there and came out with my salmon blazer. I've had it ever since. I bring it out about this time every year in normal circumstances. I would probably be somewhere out there on the road doing a game this weekend and uh, wearing this from some sort of stadium out there. But obviously, we continue to live through interesting times. I hope everybody is out there staying safe. I hope everybody is out there staying sane and doing the things to uh, help protect yourselves, the ones you love, and everybody else uh, out there. And, uh, you know, we still muddle through this. And uh, this is a little break, as we say each and every time. This is just a little escape. Mossy and I talking about all things soccer. There's still plenty to talk about when it comes to our game, despite the fact that nobody is kicking the ball. Mossy, uh, before we, uh, we head into this, I don't know about you, but, you know, given the fact that, uh, you know, th there was this whole hoarding type of mentality when it came to a lot of things, in particular when it comes to you know, cleaning and antibacterial type of stuff. I went online the other day and I, I don't know if I made the mistake, but desperation calls for desperate types of times. And I clicked on a link on uh, the homepage that I was on and it took me to this, it has to be said, it looked a little shady, but I was able to buy, you know, uh, Purell type, not Purell, but the equivalent of Purell in uh, much, in, in, in a much more interesting type of form. I have no idea if this is ever going to arrive at my house. They do have my credit card number, so I am vigilantly checking my credit card to make sure because who knows, they, they took plenty of my money, but I have yet to get any product right now. I can't be in the same boat. Are you all stocked up and are you all, all, all sufficiently supplied when it comes to both the food and the uh, disinfectant out there where you are? Well, in terms of food, I don't do much stocking. I've been eating takeout for all my meals. In terms of medical supplies, uh, I am in good shape thanks to my parents who mailed me a box of masks, which I've been wearing the last couple of days. I thought about doing this podcast in a mask, but really, I might not be able to understand all my words. So that's that's true. Yeah, we have uh, you know here's so they tell you 
uh, you should wear a mask, but masks are very, very difficult to, to get. They tell you that you should disinfect and do all these different things. And yet it's so difficult to find all of this, all, all this stuff. But, you know, as I, uh, as I've uh, told my kids, I mean, this is, we're, we're calling this, this war that we are waging, but if the worst part about this uh, in order to keep yourself and others safe is that you have to sit at home and you have to watch TV and you have to eat uh, junk food and binge uh, watch movies or TV or anything like out there, you know, that's a, a, a small, small price of uh, price to pay relative to other wars and the things that people have gone through uh, in other war, uh, wars. So as I said, I hope everybody is staying safe. Everybody is staying sane as we go on. Mossy, let's talk a little of soccer. How about that? How about you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. We are going to start off with Mossy here, a conversation about the Bundesliga. Now, the Bundesliga, near and dear to our hearts over at Fox, we've been broadcasting it for a number of years. We obviously were in the middle of the season when coronavirus crisis hit. And we come to find out over the last week that Bundesliga teams are starting to get back together, starting to train, which poses the question is the Bundesliga? Uh, potentially going to be coming back sometime soon? And what will that look like? Why is this important or why is this interesting? We all know that relative to the stuff out there, sports uh, in any of its forms are not important. But why is this important from a sporting perspective? Because right now this is potentially that, you know, canary in a coal mine, test case, guinea pig type of situation in that they are the first that are doing this and obviously doing this uh, so openly. Anything else to add before we get into the discussion in terms of the, what we do know? We don't know a whole lot. The details have, have come out a little bit, but we do know that they are training. We do know that they are looking at potentially coming back, albeit in empty stadium type of situation. And uh, any other details that I'm missing there, Mossy? Well, May 9th is reportedly the date that they're now targeting. And as you said, the remainder of this season will be played behind closed doors. There'll be a couple hundred people allowed in the stadium. That includes players, uh, coaches, referees, medical staff, and television production staff. And all the players would be tested before each and every game. And they've been upfront about the fact that the motivation behind this is television money. The Bundesliga clubs and, and, and clubs in the second division desperately need an infusion of cash. The Bundesliga chief estimated that if they don't get that injection of cash soon, as many as half the clubs in the second division would be in risk of bankruptcy. And there are five or six clubs in the Bundesliga that would also be uh, at risk of bankruptcy. So the games, it, it appears, will restart uh, in early May. Obviously, there's been a lot of debate about it. There are some people that feel like uh, soccer shouldn't come back until you have fans in the stadium. And others feel like, no, that this is better than nothing. And at a time where you're trying to convince people to stay at home, giving them something to watch on television is actually, in some sense, a public service. And so what do you make of that? All right. So when, when I think about this, I, I think about it in terms of not just sports, but people gathering in groups. And as you mentioned, when this comes back, at least initially, it's going to be in front of empty stadiums, which is absolutely uh, appropriate. We don't necessarily ever think about, you know, and I know I'm stereotyping a little bit here, but when you think about Germany in general, you think about organization, you think about adherence, and you think about a smart society that is, that is pragmatic and that is, you know, understands what, what needs to be done. You know, if there is a, safe, a safety uh, aspect to that, they, they will deal with that. And if and when they come back, with all you know, due respect, and I understand the you know the ramifications from a business perspective and television contracts and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that they are going to risk doing anything that is going to endanger or risk the safety of anybody in there, even empty stadiums, because it's not as if you can have an empty stadium game and you just give the the uh, the players and the coach the key and they open it up and they have a little run around. No, you still have to open up the joint. You still have to have people there to work it. You still have to, by the way, if it is about television, you still have to have people there to televise that. And if any of those men and women, either on the field or off the field, are put in a situation where they're health is at risk because of this, you know, that's, that's going to be problematic. And let's be honest, when it comes to people congregating, whether it's for sports, whether it's for concerts, whether it's for, you know, religious reasons, whatever it ends up being, masses amounts of people getting together, until there is a cure or until there is an accepted type of successful treatment, 
that's not going to happen anytime soon. But it also doesn't mean that having empty, empty stadium type of situations isn't going to put people at risk. Now, all of that said, if it comes back and it goes well, and this is why people are going to be looking at it, and not just uh, uh, soccer leagues out there, but I think all professional leagues will be out there looking at what they're doing, the things that they are doing before they actually kick a ball in, in earnest, and if it goes well. Because if it doesn't go well, number one, the Bundesliga is going to take a huge, huge hit for coming back what people will recognize is at the wrong time and too early. And secondly, it's going to have a cascading type of effect on everybody else that maybe have been, maybe had been waiting to see what ultimately came from the Bundesliga doing that. You know, the other part of it, and it's part of the whole conversation that had, no matter what, and I said this, I think, uh, last pod, none of this is about being fair, okay? In that it's impossible in this unique and unprecedented type of moment to do anything that is fair to everyone. Everybody is gonna to have to make concessions. It's not going to be equal and balanced and fair for everybody because while we are all going through this together, the reality is that you are going to have to do some things that hurt, uh, hurt teams, that hurt leagues, that hurt uh, individuals. And so everybody's going to be coming back at different times relative to where they are, relative to the, the rules and the safety precautions and all that kind of stuff. So everybody's going to have a little bit of advantage here or a little bit disadvantage here. It's impossible to have everybody, you know, have the best advantage. And the problem there arises if you are fighting for promotion or if you're fighting uh, against relegation and stuff like that, you need every little bit of help that you can possibly, uh, possibly get right now. Even right now in the Bundesliga, there are certain teams that are already ahead in terms of the ability to train and how much they have been allowed to train and in what type of circumstances right, right now. But I think this, this whining and complaining that is, is normal and to be expected about, oh, this isn't fair, that doesn't get us anywhere because the reality is while you can try, no matter what, it is never going to be fair when you're coming back and coming into something that is so unprecedented and so unique in terms of the challenge both on and off the field. What do you think? Uh, I saw some German politicians sort of bristling at the fact that while uh, nobody else is going to be able to go back to work and kids won't be able to go back to school, we're jumping through hoops to get soccer back as quickly as possible. And that's reflective of this sports obsessed culture that we live in. While others have defended this and said that, no, sports are important. They provide people with a necessary diversion at this time. So uh, I know it's a difficult question, but what do you make of that sort of larger debate regarding the, the importance of, of sports in society? Obviously, Mossy, sports, soccer, while we take it very seriously, it is our business. It is the world that we live in. We have a passion for it and a love for it. Um, it, it pales in comparison to any of the real life stuff and the crisis that we're talking about. And even in the best of times, we recognize that while sports is a nice to have, it is not a have to have. You know, having said that, sports, I think, does play a role in the, you know, in, in, the, in the conscience and in the mentality, um, in the health especially, you know, the mental health of, of people, out, uh, people out there. Is it being rushed back? I, probably only because I think we equate it with normalcy. And we're so desperate to get back to some form of normalcy that we want that sports component to be there because it makes us feel comfortable. I mean, ultimately, sports is a comfort food, okay? And there is value to that because of the way that it makes you feel. And not just the comfort, but the security at times that it can give you. And I think, I, I think that's what you're seeing uh, play out here. And, you know, you talked uh, a little bit earlier about you know, the, the business ramifications and realities when it comes to this. And that, those are absolutely fair and relevant to point out and talk about. But there's a, there's a bigger component when it comes to soccer about how it makes us feel and sports and how it makes us feel. And if and when sports is back in our life, we feel that we are headed in the right direction. We feel that there is light at the end of the tunnel and we, we use sports to shine, shine that light. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. However, I do think that when we get out of this, 
the significance and the importance of sports may change. Will it take a hit? Will it, will it, will it be less important? I don't know, but I just think the way that we look at sports may be different. And maybe that's just, it comes with a dramatic event and a forced perspective that maybe at times, in normal times, is, is lost. I don't know. How do you think that, that this, we'll put the Bundesliga aside just for a second here, but how do you think sports, and in particular soccer, is looked at? Do you just think it comes back right where it was, if not even more important or more exciting and uh, more popular than ever? I do. I, I do think we live in a sports obsessed culture and I don't see that changing anytime soon and actually having it have be stripped away from you for, for such a, a prolonged period is really going to sort of uh, make people feel even more love for it when it does come back. So yeah, I, I often hear that, you know, we need to put things in perspective with regards to sports, but I think that ship sailed a long time ago and we just live in a, in a society that just... So we lost perspective when it came to sports a long time, a long time ago. <laughs> now, with the, with the caveat that if and when, I mean, sports, the, the importance of the community and that congregation coming together is a reason why oftentimes sports is, is equated with religion because of the, the fervor and because of the emotion that it, that evokes. But a lot of that is with that tribalism of getting together. And so while it's not perfect, at least having a game within the, the church, I guess, if you will, even though the church will be, will be empty, that's, that's better. That's better than nothing. But if, and when, we get to the point where it is deemed safe and secure to return in mass to those churches that are our stadiums and stuff like that. That's when I think I agree with you that you are going to see an even, an even greater degree of gratitude for the sport joy for the ability to be living in a world and in a life where you can once again enjoy that sport and passion at an elevated level. But there might be some that say, you know what? This has taught me that while sports is all fine and well, it's not something that I want to spend my time with or, and more importantly, I want to spend my, uh, my money with. I don't know. I don't know how it's, uh, it's all going to end out but getting back to the actual uh the the bundesliga put on your uh, once again I, I love to ask you this but put on your little hat or look into your crystal ball how do you think i don't know let's say a month from now or two months from now we are looking at the bundesliga do you think it will have played games do you think that it will have gone well uh, albeit in, in empty stadiums and that we'll be well on our way to finishing out what has to be said is the most unique season uh bundesliga season in history yeah i think there's a lot of momentum behind this may 9th date and that is when we'll see the bundesliga fire up again and listen i have to give them the benefit of the doubt they wouldn't be doing this unless they felt like it was completely safe so i think it's going to hopefully go well beyond the fact that it is going to be empty stadiums which as we've talked about is incredibly bizarre it's a very bizarre way to watch a game but it, it, I, I'm in the it's better than nothing camp. So I'm, I'm for coming back, even if it's an empty stadium. So it's just something we're going to have to get used to for the uh, foreseeable future. Would you be in favor of piping in crowd noise? Uh, and I've talked about this before. I think that there's a real kind of, in a strange way, this, this creative opportunity to color the game from a technical perspective and make it something, augment it. And I know it's fabricated, I get it, but you know, this is ultimately entertainment. And even more so now, because since there's nobody in the stadium, everybody will be watching it on television. And I don't think it's wrong to try to do the things to make that experience as good as you can with an understanding that everybody's above board. Listen, this is what's happening right now. Do you think that that would be something that you would be in favor of, or would you rather recognize that, look, this is what it is, and it's going to be stark, and it's going to be echoey, and it's going to be a little jarring to the senses uh, watching that? No, I'd be in favor of it. If I'm not mistaken, I think PSG might have done it for the second leg against Dortmund. So yeah, I, I see nothing wrong with that. I'm sure some purists out there <laughs> might uh, decry it as not being authentic. But if there's ever a time for those people to kind of <laughs> step aside, 
I would, yeah, I would love to see that happen. And you know, the Bundesliga, uh, I think that they would do it well. They, you know, they create content well, they create it fast. It's a, it's of quality. I think they do a really good job of televising it. And so I think that they, you know, they could find some really, really unique ways. And once again, to kind of show the rest of the, the rest of the world as you know, I guess they're pioneers. And look, when you're a pioneer, if it goes well, you, you reap the rewards. And if it doesn't, you know, you, you're the one that ultimately, ultimately pays, the, pays the price. Who do you think is next in terms of the big leagues out there to follow suit? Tough to say. I mean, I, I, I would think maybe the Premier League. Mm. It seems like they're itching to get back. And, you know, on the topic of television money, I mean, who has more uh, to benefit financially than the, the Premier League? So, you know, it's interesting. A, a couple more notes on the Bundesliga. In Germany, players and clubs were able to get together and resolve the issue of players reducing their salaries with, with much less acrimony than we've seen in other countries. So that helped. But one issue that's come up is at this time when German clubs are in such need of money, it's been suggested that maybe they should be a little bit more flexible on the 50 plus one model. But the uh, Bundesliga chief came out and said, absolutely not. Uh, as long as I'm in charge, 50 plus one will remain and it's going to operate exactly the way it's been operating. And we're not going to be flexible on that at all. And I was thinking about, as I was reading about 50 plus one the last couple of days, boy, it's amazing how long ago it feels that that was the big controversy. Remember the Dietmar Hopp stuff yep. and players walking off the field. And boy, that, that feels like ages ago now. Well, look, if a league like the Bundesliga that has such a long history and such a rich history, and as you mentioned, such a unique history when it comes to the actual structure of it, if this crisis were to change that, then, I mean, that would be seismic. But we all know that, you know, sometimes you have to do what, what is necessary in order to save something that you have. And that might be mean that you have to adapt and you have to change. You have to make significant changes. And whether it's, whether it's sports, soccer, or, or anything else out there from a business perspective, I think it's naive to think that we can just return to the way that it was. And so, so either because we've seen a better way or because we've just had to adapt and change. There are going to be changes all across the board in our society, including in sports. And I, I think about, Mossy, for example, some of the challenges ahead. You mentioned your mask, right? So you could envision a time in the future, um, even if coronavirus subsides and we, as I said, either we have a vaccine or we have a, a suitable uh, course of treatment that everybody is comfortable with, the recognition that we are, our society's changing and that we may not shake hands anymore, okay? We may social distance just out of an abundance of caution. Even masks, for example. As you know, Mossy, one of the things that has come about in, uh, in recent times is the incredible technology that enables people in a confined area and in masses to be tracked facial recognition, the security aspect. Can you imagine if you have an entire stadium full of home and opposing fans, all heated up, all passionate, and now they're all wearing masks, either that they brought or you know the branding's gonna happen, you know the branding and the uh, mask night is going to happen, but now every single person there is wearing, is wearing a mask. And from a security perspective, you know that can be incredibly problematic. One of the, one of the tools that people have at their disposal when there is problems in the stadium is the video identification of individuals and faces and, uh, and, under, and understanding. And if you can't, you can't do that, but you know, there's going to be a whole lot of people that out of abundance of, of caution are going to be wearing masks. So th there are so many things that we can think about. There's so many things that we don't think about that are going to come out of this uh, going forward. What I think, and I, I don't want to speak for you, Mossy, but I think both of us and a lot of people, as we look at this Bundesliga test case here, what we want to come out is that it goes off without a hitch in that people are safe. You get the Bundesliga to continue, so you're able to watch professional soccer being played in a league that we recognize is populated with wonderful, wonderful talent, and that others are able to see that test case and to see that template of how the Bundesliga go about it and are able to replicate it on a continual basis. And everybody just starts coming back at, uh, at different times. And we get to a point where at the very least, we can see professional soccer being, uh, being played. And then 
in the distance, you know, we're back to a situation where we are actually going, uh, going to the games. But this is a start and this is a positive. And in the same way, Mossy, that from a, a medical standpoint, we are being cautioned and rightly so to while the numbers may be coming down or that curve might be being bent and dampened, this is the time to continue. Uh, and to make sure that we're still doing the things. In that same way, while we can be excited and cautiously optimistic of the Bundesliga, it's also, you know, it's also a risk and there could be, you know, negative uh, consequences to doing something like this. But I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I hope the Bundesliga has uh, success in this and that uh, that translates to the other leagues. Anything else, Mossy, before we move on from uh, this Bundesliga news? No, that's it. All right, uh, we are going to uh, move on and we are going to go into our Ask Alexi segment coming up uh, next. And so when we return, we'll be talking about you know, some big, big games that kind of defined the U.S. men's national team over the years. We'll be talking about players that I think maybe play a little bit like I used to. And we're going to be talking about esports, which has always been big, but it couldn't have been bigger over the last uh, couple of months here with what has happened and the prevalence of that, the importance of that, the significance of that when it comes to our sport. Coming up right next. Ask Alexi. Okay, welcome back. We are going to go into our Ask Alexi segment, that uh, part of the show where you send us questions with that hashtag Ask Alexi. You can also send Ask Mossy. He uh, knows much more than I do. Uh, that's that's for sure. We have picked out uh, a few of them here to read, and Mossy is going to let us know what the people want to know this week, Mossy. First up, at C. Nagaldino, what single match of any era best represents the U.S. men's national team and the quote-unquote style of the U.S. team at Statman Mossy, same question, but for Brazil. Interesting, because this presupposes that the U.S. men's national team, and let's just, I, I guess let's, let's, let's go from 90, all right? We know it's, it's, it's existed for a long time. Let's go from 90, but this presupposes that the men's national team not only has a style, but has continued that style, or there is a definitive type of style. So, which is fine. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll play along. Um, there, I'm sure there are people that argue that it has been constantly evolving. And part of the problem is that we have never really settled on a style. Having said that, I look back at the uh, years and I do in my mind have an idea of what the men's national team style, philosophy, whatever you want to call it, uh, actually is. And I think these types of games reflect that. But I do recognize that it has evolved and it has tried to change and add or augment over the years. And that there was a time where maybe it was more rudimentary and, and raw and brutal and it has gotten a little bit more nuanced. Uh, okay, so let's start. A, uh, you know, I've talked about this game before, United States versus Argentina in the 1995 Copa America down in Uruguay. A momentous win for the U.S., 3-0. There was nothing smash and grab about it. There was nothing lucky about it other than the usual luck that any team has. And I really think, because you, you might notice that I did not pick a game from the 1994 World Cup, and you can, you can look at different games, for example, the U.S.-Columbia game, which was deserved, but I don't think it was the best game that we have ever played. But when I look at that Argentina-US game, uh, as I, not only was it deserved, we took it to an Argentina team. We didn't bunker. There was no park the bus type of mentality. If and when we did get out on the break because we were absorbing some pressure, it was decisive you know, with Eric Winalda and Joe Max Moore and these types, uh, these types of players. I think even in that game, we were playing three in the back. So... I just think it was the most complete game. And what it did represent for me was this evolution from the team in 1994 to the team in 1995. And so, much, so, so many of us were so much more accomplished and we had matured so much in that year that it all just kind of came together. If you look at that game, there is a rawness and a brutality and a physical nature that I think always epitomized the U.S. men's national team. And it's something that, I, unfortunately, I think we've tried to get away from because we associate getting away from that with, with we romanticize 
keeping the ball and possession of the ball with that must be evolution. And that's not always the case, but I digress. That could be something else. So that's, that's one game. The other one that came to mind was the U.S.-Mexico game in 2002 in the World Cup. Why that game? Obviously, it was a seminal moment. It was Dos Acero. It was in a World Cup. There were no excuses from either side about players not there or home field advantage or anything like that. It was straight up, we are playing you. You had all the, the fundamentals out there. You had wonderful counterattacking and speed on the break that finished off. You had great aerial presence when it came to Brian McBride. You had great goalkeeping. You had a grit, if you will, for lack of a better word, when it came to, you know, I don't know, a, a Mastriani type of player. Uh, you had old school in a Kobe Jones, but you had new school in terms of a Landon Donovan. And so that's, that's another one. And then the U.S. beating Spain in the Confederations Cup in what would have been 2009. At the time, Spain, the number one team in the world. And once again, completely deserved. Because you know, I try to not have a game that you say, wow, it was just one of those days where all the stars aligned and everything went well. And it was all about luck and, uh, you know, a, a a save here or, or missed chance there, and it would have been a completely different game. And I think all three of those games do a good job of encapsulating what that team was at the moment and also took the best from the past. If I had to just pick one, I think I'm going to go with the 0-2 Mexico, 2-0 uh, win in the World Cup against Mexico. So that, for me, is the game that epitomizes what the U.S. men's national team is. In a strange way it, that it's sandwiched between those other two that I mentioned, it took the best of what we were, and I think almost it was the best of what we would try to become later and was encapsulated in one game. Mossy, what do you think of, uh, of that before I get to uh, your picks? No, I buy it. Uh, I like all your selections. Absolutely. And yeah, and that, that World Cup win over Mexico, I think that's the, the one game to me that stands out for sure. Is there a Brazilian one that you and your brethren uh, over there always point to as almost the, and, and you have a, a much greater swath to choose from, obviously, but one that everyone points to? I know there's teams, Brazilian teams that they point to, but is there a specific game that that was the artist painting the masterpiece? artists painting the masterpiece? Well, I gave this question a lot of thought. Uh, I certainly had the time to do so. And I've come up with three games that I think encapsulate. If you're somebody like my dad, who was born in 1952 and has been following the Brazilian national team since the late 50s, I think there are three games that encapsulate all the different phases of the uh, Brazilian national team over that period. And ironically enough, they're all against Italy. The first one is the 1970 World Cup final, which Brazil defeated Italy 4-1 to in Mexico. And that really was the culmination of this golden age of Brazilian football. From 1958 through 1970, Brazil won three out of four World Cups. And a lot of the mystique and the romance that surrounds Brazilian football was born during that period. Now, listen, there's always little bit of mythologizing that goes on with these things. I, I've, I've gone back and watched that 1970 final. That game was 1-1 mid-second half with Italy more than holding their own. But uh, the way Brazilians remember it today, that it's, you know, we played them off the field. It wasn't quite like that. But nevertheless, that was a beautiful team to watch. Uh, it's widely considered the greatest team of all time. That was uh, during the era of color television around the world. I believe it was the first World Cup to be broadcast on color television around the world. And they beat Italy 4-1 in the final. And the final goal, which was scored by Carlos Alberto, was this wonderful team move, which I think a lot of people look at as sort of a distillation of everything that people love and that made people fall in love with Brazilian football. Then uh, football started going this direction of being a bit more tactical, a bit more physical, a bit more pragmatic, and countries had sort of a decision to make about which way they wanted to go. And I think the defining game from that era, from a Brazilian standpoint, is in 1982, Brazil again had this wonderful team which evoked memories of 1970 and enchanted the world. Everybody thought they were going to win that World Cup in Spain, and they were knocked out by Italy July 5th, 1982, this classic game. They lost 3-2. to two. Paulo Rossi scored all three goals. And again, there's a whole lot of mythologizing that goes on about that game because to hear Brazilians tell it today Italy parked the bus for 90 minutes and their three goals fell out of the sky I've gone back and watched that game Italy played very well they actually had a fourth goal wrongly disallowed at the end it should have been 4-2 and they were deserved winners but nevertheless that game losing that game had a profound effect on Brazilian football because that allowed all the pragmatists to to say that 
in quote unquote modern football. You can't win playing this way anymore. And Brazil needs to adopt a more pragmatic streak. And so Brazil has started started going down this path, which I think they've been on for the last 30 or so years. And which is why the third game I picked, ironically enough, is actually the 94 World Cup final, because I think that game encapsulates this weird dilemma that Brazilian soccer fans have had the last 30 years where we've continued to win a lot and be successful, but not do it in a way that's perhaps as satisfying and, and, you know, doing it in a way that sort of eroded some of the mystique that existed about Brazilian football. You know, there, there's no less satisfying way to win a final of a major tournament than nil-nil after 120 minutes and winning on penalties. But that's how we won the World Cup. And so you're sort of trying to reconcile those two things. And so I think those to me would be the three games I would pick that would sort of cover, span this whole sort of, I guess, 50, 60-year period of, of Brazilian football. I would think from a Brazilian, it almost it begs to be chosen a losing game because that's the romance that I feel when it comes to Brazil. So finding that game where you lost the battle, but you won the war, you, you in losing showed that you are going to stick with your principle. And that is so romantic that, uh, uh, that it should be celebrated and stuff like that. So that was interesting, the games that, uh, that you chose and, and, uh, and why. Yeah, in Brazil, there, there's very much a feud between the 94 team and the 82 team because the 94 guys, the Dungas and Romarios, they resent the fact that the 82 team, which didn't win the World Cup, is more beloved in Brazil than the 94 team, which did. And when Dunga was the coach of Brazil and he, and he adopted a more pragmatic style, a lot of the 82 players had become television pundits and, and were criticizing him. And he would throw it back at them and saying, what do you know? Your guys are a bunch of losers who couldn't even win the World Cup. And so it really reignited that, that debate. And it really is sort of the defining debate in contemporary Brazilian football. Or do, you, do you give more merit to the 82 team that played beautifully but came up short or the 94 team which maybe wasn't as beautiful but actually won the world cup and i think where you come down on that sort of uh defines what type of fan you are today in brazilian football i think i i, I will leave it uh at this i do not want a pragmatic brazil okay <laughs> that's that's not what i signed up for that's not what i was promised and so Dunga, that's not Brazil, okay? <laughs> so, so you know, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Dunga, that's, uh, that you won a World Cup, well done, congratulations. Uh, but I, I feel that, and I'm, I'm certainly not Brazilian, I don't want to speak for the Brazilians, but I feel that it's not enough to win for Brazil. You have to win in a certain way. And if you lose, at least lose in the way that is respectable and um, lives up to the level of romance that you have promised everybody around the world and the Brazilians out there. Is that fair enough to say, Masi? Absolutely. All right, moving on. What's the uh, next question here on the uh, Ask Alexi old machine here? Uh, next up, at Chelsea Matt 33 what current player reminds you most of yourself? Ooh, well, we know they broke the mold, not because it couldn't get any better, but because they wanted to make sure that they never had to deal with that uh, ever again. Okay, let me think here. Two people come to mind in the game today, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the Americans and players that, uh, in, these, in both these cases, are players that have featured and continue to feature for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, one of them currently, Walker Zimmerman, center back now for Nashville, previously for LAFC and for FC Dallas. You know, one of the potential starters for Greg Berhalter's national team at center back. I like the way that he plays i think his stature his ability in the air i think it 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 reminds me of it but if i have to just give one it's going to be omar gonzalez people remember him there's a how do i say this kindly well it doesn't matter because i'm talking about myself too so uh there is an awkwardness in the and gangly type of movement in what he does that reminds me of myself. Was I the best player ever to play the game? No. Uh, was I the greatest athlete ever to grace any athletic field? No. You know, I was obviously very tall. I've talked about my, <laughs> my lack of speed, but obviously being dominant in the air, that's got to be part of the, uh, the assessment. Um, I think uh, he is better with his feet than people realize. And I like to say that maybe about myself. I don't talk a whole lot about my past but 
I think I was better with my feet than uh, I gave myself credit or that others gave me credit for. So I think Omar Gonzalez, but you know, he, he struggles at times with quick, fast players in the way that I did, but he knows what he is good at and he's one of the best at it. Uh, and he also knows not to put himself into situations uh, that cause problems. So that would be uh, a player that I would uh, equate. What about, what about you, Mossy, with that left foot? Anybody out there left foot-wise that, uh, <laughs> that you say, yeah, he's got a little Mossy in him? I think uh, if you look at the Brazilian Ronaldo today, uh, there are some similarities in terms of physique. Um, <laughs> that's probably as far as I come to comparing myself to any. Uh, All right, let's finish off this uh, Ask Alexi. Uh, what else do we got here? Final question. At NetLOC. Uh, what are your thoughts on the growing role of esports during this time of no real soccer in the U.S.? Every MLS team already had esport players before the pandemic, but now their role seems more mainstream and important in keeping soccer alive. Interesting, interesting, and very relevant with what's going on today. I was, uh, you know, I was just seeing that uh, my old friend Max Bretos over there, uh, who does television work and broadcast work for LAFC, was broadcasting an actual FIFA game between LAFC and uh, Vancouver. And I remember even years ago, I remember doing the FIFA World Cup in New York City, in Harlem at the Apollo Theater, and it was nuts. Uh, I actually commentated on the, uh, myself and John Strong, and they had me next to someone I didn't know, and I found out this guy had like 10 million people on YouTube that followed him, follow him. He was explaining to me the fast twitch and how you get older and you lose some of the movement in your fingers and all that kind of stuff. So even back then it was important. It continues to be important. And actually it has been an incredible educator of now multiple generations. There are multiple generations that without video gaming and without in particular FIFA, would not have been involved in the game, would not know coaches and grounds and leagues and teams and tactics and all the different stuff that comes out of the game. So I think it's a wonderful tool and it's a wonderful way of getting people into the tent that might not come in in the traditional way. Does it supplant or replace what we know and love? No, but as the technology continues to evolve and advance, they're doing a wonderful job of getting as close as they possibly uh, possibly can. But without the actual human element, other than the, the joystick and the control that you have, uh, it's never going to be the real thing. In the same way that synthetic surfaces have evolved and grown so much, but it's still not grass. And until they can actually put it up against grass until esports can actually put it up against the real thing and come out equal or better. It's always going to be below it. And that's not, it's not a bad thing. And right now it, it is, it is taking the place of what we have. There's a competitive side to it. No, look, people will watch people compete in anything marbles or, or whatever it ends up being. So the competitive side is there. You want to win. You have teams. As you mentioned, in, even in the question, every MLS team has their own EMLS player out there. So, you know, it's, it's only going to get bigger. It's wonderful to see because ultimately, I've said before, I don't care whether it's men, women, co-ed naked, or esports. As long as people are playing the game in some form and are into the game and are passionate about the game in some form, I'm good with it. I don't think it's detrimental. I don't think it's a problem. I don't think the challenge of esports to the traditional games is something to fear if you can try to incorporate it and and make it part of the whole culture of being a soccer fan. And I think that good leagues and good teams are able to do that, but not everybody else, not everybody is able to do that. And sometimes people just are dinosaurs and they they fear what what is coming and they fear change and they fear modern type of things um but i think mls has done a good job of, of embracing it and recognizing it that it's not going away it's only to get bigger and if they as i said can find a way to incorporate it into the whole experience of being a soccer fan whether it's mls or anybody out there then that's the way that it should be uh, should be used and right now since nobody's playing there's a lot of uh you know, games that are going on right now, people playing FIFA, either professional FIFA play, players 
or getting players actually from teams competing against other players from teams in a virtual type of, uh, of competition. Do you play uh, FIFA, Mossy? Not anymore. I had a phase uh, as a youngster. I used to love to play FIFA. And also before that, I used to love the NHL uh, Sega Genesis game growing up. I thought that was terrific. And what happened? You just you grew up and just got out of it? You wanted the real thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to offend people, older people who still play, but yes, I grew up. I also had a uh, wrestling phase, and I thought everybody outgrew that eventually, but Rob Stone clearly proves otherwise. <laughs> I'm going to tell him you said that. All right, that's enough of uh, Ask Alexi, but definitely use, uh, continue to uh, use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there and send us your comments, questions, and concerns, uh, and we will pick a few of them each and every week, as we always do, and uh, read them out uh, on air. Mossy, anything else before we move on? Nope. All right, we are going to head on to uh, another segment here. When we come back, we're going to be going through some of the great countries and cultures and teams out there, and we're going to be attaching players that resonate with us. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the best players, but great players in our minds that have come from those countries when we come back. All right, moving on. All right, welcome back. Mossy, let's do a little exercise here. Um, we have uh, basically gotten together and, and pulled out, I don't know, 10 countries, cultures, teams, and we're going to identify players that over the years, could be any, any era, and for whatever reason, resonate with us in that this is the player that we individually associate with this, this team. Have I framed that correctly, Mossy? Uh, yeah, it's actually 12 countries. And credit where credit's due. This was somebody on Twitter who, who posted this question. So they selected the countries, folks. So um, uh, if, if you feel like we left out a country that, that merited uh, the discussion, then you know, it wasn't, wasn't our decision. Uh, we just went with their list uh, and it's 12 countries and we decided the assignment we were each given from Alex Dowd was to pick our favorite player from each of those countries. Uh, I went a step beyond and also identified who I think the greatest player is from each of those countries. So uh, we'll go through all that, but uh, I think you're up first. Uh, well, you wanna... Can you give us the countries first? I want to make sure that I have all 12 of them. Go, go for it. Give me, give right. us, read it down the countries. Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Portugal, England, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, USA, and Mexico. All right. So I'm going to go through my 10 without comment. Then I'm going to go to you, and you're going to go through your 10 without comment. And then we're going to kind of maybe pick some and either debate or disagree or agree when it comes to that. Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> Germany, Kaiser, Beckenbauer. France, Zidane. Italy, Paolo Maldini. Spain, Puyol, Netherlands, Cruyff, Portugal, Ricosta, England, Gaza, Brazil, Romario. I don't know if I pronounced that right for you, but anyway. Argentina, Diego, Maradona, in case there was any doubt. Uruguay, Luis Suarez. Mexico, Claudio Suarez. U.S., Tab Ramos. Did I hit all of the countries there? I hope I did. Uh, you did. And, and those were your favorite players from yep. each of those countries. Those are my favorite players from those countries. The ones that resonated me. For It could be for uh, any, any number of reasons. And if you want, I can give those to you. But th those are them. So let that, let, let that digest now for you out there as Mossy gives us his picks. Go for it, Mossy. Okay, uh, Germany's greatest player is Beckenbauer, but my favorite player is Schweinsteiger. France, this is one of the great debates in world football, Zidane versus Platini. I think Zidane takes it by a hair. I think he is France's greatest player, and he also happens to be my favorite French player, so Zidane, Zidane there. Italy, uh, I've, I've spoken on this podcast before about how much I love Italian players. For a country that's known for defense, they've produced some of the classiest players in the last 30 years, from Baggio to Del Piero to Totti to Pirlo. I am going to go with Del Piero as my favorite. In terms of greatest all-time Italian player, I thought about going real hipster on you and going Giuseppe Meazza, who was the star of the 34 and 38 World Cup winning teams. But I'll go with Paolo Maldini as the greatest ever Italian player. Spain, my favorite is Xavi. And as far as Spain's greatest ever player, I think it is a flip of a coin between Xavi and Iniesta. Uh, I'll go with Xavi there too. Netherlands, greatest all-time player is Cruyff. But my favorite Dutch player is Dennis Bergkamp. 
Portugal greatest all-time player is Cristiano Ronaldo, but uh, my favorite Portuguese player, and you know, great minds think alike, is Rui Costa. Always had a thing for him. Love that guy. Watched him play with Fiorentina live at the Artemio Franchi Stadium. England uh, greatest ever player, Sir Bobby Charlton. My favorite player, it was between Gaza and Alan Shear. I went with Shear. Bonus points for making you look ridiculous at Wembley in '94. Get in line. Yeah. Brazil, uh, greatest ever player is Pele, but my favorite is Ronaldo. I've talked about it many times. Argentina, greatest ever player. I know we could do a whole podcast on this, but I go Messi over Maradona. And then my favorite all-time Argentinian, there are a couple of guys I I love. Javier Zanetti and Fernando Redondo could go either way there. I'll I'll go Redondo just for the purposes of picking one. Uh, Uruguay, greatest ever player is Luis Suarez, and my favorite is Luis Suarez, so Suarez, Suarez there. USA, Although Christian Pulisic is obviously the most talented player the U.S. has ever produced, only a fool <laughs> that, uh, since he's only uh, 21 and hasn't actually achieved anything, I'll go with Landon Donovan as the U.S.'s greatest ever player. My favorite would be John O'Brien. We talked about it in, in that discussion about uh, injury what-ifs. Uh, I remember watching that guy in 2002 and being blown away. I thought he was so talented. And then Mexico, finally, greatest ever player, Hugo Sanchez, and my favorite Mexican player, Andres Guardado. Wonderful. All right. So I'm going to change one of mine based on your selection. Remind me again who you picked for Italy. Uh, I picked Del Piero as my favorite and Maldini as their greatest ever player. You think that Maldini is the greatest Italian player ever. Okay. I'm going to change it to Buffon in that I, you know, all of this is uh, obviously what, what moves you, what, what, you know, what hits you. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to do with kicking, with kicking the ball. We all know the, the epic moments in broadcasting when Italy is playing and we come down the line at the beginning of the game and we see Gigi Buffon singing the national anthem. That in and of itself, it sounds, it sounds dumb. It sounds stupid to, to base everything off of that. I mean, look, he's also one of the great goalkeepers ever to play the game. But that moment, for me is epic. I'm changing it. I'm taking Paolo Maldini out and I'm putting Gigi Buffon in for, uh, uh, for that. Now, so that's, that's one thing. Uh, who did you have for Spain? Xavi as my favorite all-time player. And then I said it's sort of a flip of a coin between Xavi and Iniesta as the, for their greatest ever player. Yeah, I went with Puyol. And the reason I went with that, not the least of which is, you know, got to love a long hair there and an ability to get up in the air and go up on set pieces and, and do all that. But he, for me, one of the reasons why he stood out because he was so anti, and it's not that he couldn't play, but he was so anti what... Spain kind of was coming to represent. And I love the fact that he was still able to find his role and fit in. And there was obvious, you know, love and respect and gratitude and admiration for what he, for what he did. Uh, You'll see that there's a lot of characters on here. Gaza, uh, you know, Diego over Messi. I, I, as anybody that's listened to this pod knows, I love big, bold, arrogant characters. I don't even have to agree with everything they do. I don't even have to like them, okay? But I want to be entertained. I want performers. I want people who recognize that they are on stage for me and revel in it and want to do it and are bigger than life in the things that they do. And so that's reflected in a lot of the different things here. As, but not necessarily in someone like Claudio Suarez for Mexico, who I, who I picked, because he was the epitome of a center back who never panicked, who read the game, who put out fires before anybody knew they were even about to start. Just a class, class player, a class individual. I've talked to you about Tab Ramos and how he was a man out of time. Uh, Luis Suarez, who obviously the goal scoring speaks for itself, but also this this bigger than life character, uh, the things that he has done, the infamous things that he has done, it all plays into why I want to be fascinated. I want to be fascinated by everything about this player, not only on the field, but off the field. And so that's why I picked a lot of uh, uh, these different people. You know, when it comes to someone like Cruyff, who, who fundamentally changed the way that not only we play about the game, but the way that we think about the game, uh, as did Beckenbauer. You know, that's, that's hard to do. That's hard to do in life, in, in a lot of things in life. 
And it's certainly hard to do in sports to have somebody do something that either in the moment or after the moment, it's recognized that they, in the way that they went about it, changed the way we play or think about the game. That doesn't, that doesn't happen a lot. And we are still feeling the effects of him both as a player and as a, uh, obviously as a manager, but I know this was players. Any uh, specific ones you want to point out on your list there, Mossy? No, I just think the most fun debate, obviously Messi versus Maradona is just an eternal debate that we're always going to have, but I, I just find Zidane versus Platini to be really fun. I know it, it, a lot of it depends on how, how old you are, uh, but I've, I've spoken to people who I consider equally knowledgeable about the game who will fiercely defend uh, different sides of that one. Uh, obviously, Zidane has the World Cup in his resume. Platini doesn't. So. so why do you come out on the Zidane side? Yeah, again, maybe age has something to do with it, but I just think the slightly more transcendent player and, and a little bit better overall resume, but it's very close. I can respect uh, somebody that, that sides with Platini. And what did Schweinsteiger do that, that resonated so much with you? Boy, you know, I just have a thing, you know, I, I picked Xavi as my favorite Spain player. I, I just have a thing for that sort of classy midfielder, dictate the rhythm of a game. And, you know, frankly, you know, <laughs> to go back to the Ask Alexi, it's a player that post-1982, after Brazil lost that game to Italy, uh, that player was sort of drummed out of Brazilian football for a long time because there was this notion that part of being pragmatic is having more rugged, Dunga-type central midfielders. And so I always, for a while there, looked on jealously at these other countries that had these very classy, deep-lying playmakers that could control a game through their passing and technical ability. And so that type of player particularly resonated with me in other countries but it, because it was always the type of player that I wish Brazil had. And so Schweinsteiger did resonate with me in that way. But yeah, I mean, there are others for sure I could have picked. I mean, Germany, there's no shortage of... As there is no shortage in Brazil. And I picked Romario. Obviously, there's a bias having seen him up close and... I always say that his, you know, his low center of gravity, his first two steps, but also if you go and watch the the different types of goals that he scored, and I know you can say that about Ronaldo and, and Ronaldinho and these types of players too, but for me, I mean, he scored a goal in the 94 World Cup. I can't remember who it was against, but it was the outside of the right foot off of a corner that, that you know, he hit on the half volley. It was just a ridiculous thought of how to score a goal. And... So his, his bag of tricks was not only so abundant, but the types of things that he did, it's, it's not even fair to call them tricks because that, that, that disparages it in a certain way. Uh, it, was, it was all skill, but it was skill the likes of which uh, I, I have never seen. So that's one of the reasons why I went to Mario. Anything else here uh, on your list here, Moss? No, that's it. I think we can move on. All right, so we come to the uh, end of uh, yet another show here. Uh, we, uh, at the end of each and every show, I give you a little one for the road here. And I, I want to bring you back to the 70s and 80s of soccer. Uh, I, I, I always say that it's not imperative or, or important to me that this generation understands, let alone respects anything that happened in the past. But you know, perspective, I think, can be can be beneficial and ultimately can be entertaining and interesting. I don't know if this is going to be, but I'll, I'm going to try to give you a little peek back at my existence back in the 70s and 80s. And I do so because this is the 50th year of the publication of Soccer America. Soccer America was a magazine that was started back in 1971, so it just started their 50th year. And for those of us in the Wild West type of soccer community, especially in the, uh, in the 80s, uh, when I was just trying to figure out what I was as a soccer player and where I fit, it was the Bible. And it was a magazine. And for those that don't know what a magazine is, it was actually made out of paper. And you would get, you would subscribe and it would be sent to you or you would buy it at the local soccer store or bookstore, whatever it ended up being. And it was a Bible for all of us in the, the soccer world. It, uh, it informed, it entertained, it promoted everything that was going on in the soccer world. And keep in mind that this was a time before the internet. This was a time before instant information out there and social media. This was how you got your information. And to give you an idea also about how important 
it was because you would wait for that magazine to come because it had all the information, it had player profiles, it had game recaps, all that kind of stuff that you weren't able to see. It wasn't as simple as going to YouTube or anything like that. And you would pull, you would pull it apart. The reason why, or one of the reasons why I went to Rutgers University was specifically because I had gotten a copy of Soccer America. I had never seen, read, or heard anything about Rutgers University. And I got a copy of Soccer America, and I read something about Peter Vermes, who would then go on and star for Rutgers uh, and the national team starting in 1990, playing in the World Cup for the U.S. I opened it up. I read an article about Rutgers University didn't know anything about where it was, had no idea that it was in New Jersey or anything like that. It resonated with me and it stayed with me so much that I kept it in the back of my mind. And when it came time to look around at some different places, it was one of the uh, universities that I looked into. And I actually got a uh, application sent simply because I had seen that it was in Soccer America. And because it was in Soccer America, that meant that in my mind, it was genuine, it was authentic, and it was relevant. That's how important Soccer America was to me. And then, you know, as the years went by and, you know, you would find yourself on the cover of Soccer America. And I still have those, those magazines. All of that is to say that times have changed, the world has changed, Magazines are a thing of the past. Soccer America has evolved with the times, which is why they are able to celebrate their 50th year. And so I want to shout out to Soccer America, congratulate them for being a part of the American soccer culture and history for the last 50 years. And as I said, an, a vital and important part, and I hope they're here for another uh, 50 years in whatever form it takes as we, as we go forward. But in those days when American soccer people, we were underground. It was a Wild West type of existence. This was the connection. This was the social media, if you will, of the day. It came once a week. You looked forward to it. You devoured it when it came. You added your own commentary to the stories that were already wonderfully colorful, but you know, you looked at the pictures and you saw the people and you saw the games and you thought of this world that existed outside your little suburban type of existence when it comes uh, to soccer. And so not only congratulations, but thank you. Thank you, Soccer America, for giving that to me back in a time when it was vital and something that I needed. And as I said, in an indirect way, it led to one of the best choices I ever made, which was going to college at uh, Rutgers University. So congratulations to them. That's one for the road. And they're not alone. There's plenty of people and there's plenty of magazines out there, Soccer Digest and all the different things. But I just wanted to point that out because just to give you a little glimpse of what soccer was. And I'm so happy that it's not that anymore. I'm so happy that there's a whole generation now that wakes up and has at their fingertips, literally at their fingertips in front of them and on their, uh, on their computers or on their uh, smartphones, so much information and so much connection when it comes to our sport. So thank you very much. Mossy, anything to add before we head off into the uh, great unknown? I just want to sneak in a couple of quick television notes. Go for it. Go for it. It's on a Sunday. Uh, tonight is the season premiere, season three of Killing Eve on BBC America, a show I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of. And also, I, I'd like to let people know, I am currently binge watching Better Call Saul. I'm almost caught up, so I'll have uh, lots to say about that show in the next couple of weeks. We talk about Messi versus Maradona. I can now partake in one of the defining television debates of our time, which is Breaking Bad versus Better Call Saul. I'm almost there. I can't wait to be caught up, and we can talk about that in the next couple of weeks. Wait, there is a, there's an actual, it's a, it's a thing to say that Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad? It is very much a thing. Really? Yep. I binged Breaking Bad. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great, but I, I couldn't think that a spinoff of that could ever compare, but you're saying that that's happened. Well, now, you, now I'm intrigued, Mossy. Now I'm thinking about it. Uh, by the way, we are, as you said, taping this on a Sunday. A couple of, uh, of, of notes. Number one, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, and you, you knew this was coming once the Tiger King got uh, you know, exploded on the world. They went back and scraped all the stuff off the uh, cutting room floor to put together yet another episode to, uh, to send out. So that's, uh, that's there. Uh, I don't know what I'm watching right now. I'm looking for something to, to binge. Once again, my criteria, it has to be over. It has to start and finish. I just finished The Outsider, which was a complete mess. 
10 episodes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, out of some weird, strange duty and responsibility felt that, and maybe it's exasperated by the fact that we are in, you know, we're all kind of in quarantine here that I had to finish because it should have been only two or three episodes. It ended up being 10 episodes. It's a Stephen King thing. But just because it's Stephen King doesn't mean it started out as this brilliant, dark murder mystery crime type of thing that could have been really, really interesting. And it completely veered into this X Files Mothman prophecy type of BS that I, it would just, it was ridiculous. It jumped the shark relatively early in a 10 episode. Uh, series and it never really got back on track but I watched every single minute of it as I said out of a some weird tv duty responsibility that I that I feel I have so that that was my latest one does not get the thumbs up or uh, approval of me although it'll waste plenty of hours of your time there so I'm need, I need some suggestions as we go forward as to the next binge once again it has to start and finish I just want to end I don't want to be waiting till the next week I don't want to be waiting till the next season so let me know what you think anything else Mossy, before we head out that's it. All right. Uh, we will uh, see and talk to you next week. As always, we appreciate you showing up and uh, hanging out. Please uh, write uh, reviews and uh, subscribe, hopefully positive reviews. Subscribe, download, do all the different things out there. You can find us at all the different social media platforms. Use that Ask Alexi hashtag. Do all the things that we ask you to do each and every week. I hope that you are well. Uh, I hope that you are like all of us muddling through these interesting times and that there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. I believe there is. Uh, this too shall pass. I truly believe that. And we will come out different uh, from having gone through a uh, monumental and uh, epic type of moment in human history. But, uh, you know, I do believe that uh, we will come out stronger. I hope that you're staying safe. I hope that you're staying sane. And I hope that we have some sort of soccer in our future to be able to watch. If nothing else, we have the ability to talk about it. And so we'll continue to do that. Mossy, thank you, my friend. Have a good week. You too. All right. Size the day. 